February 20th, 2020. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. Our guest today is Tim Petros. Hi, Tim. Hello. Uh, Tim is investigator at the National Institute for Child Health and Human Development. His lab focuses on understanding how the intrinsic genetic programs and environmental signals in the CNS interact to generate interneuron diversity using both in vitro and in vivo approaches. Um, He's identifying genetic and epigenetic mechanisms that regulate all sorts of interneuron fate decisions. Um, around the room, we've got uh, Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got an undergraduate, Tristan Woods. Hi, Tristan. Hi. We've got Annie Lynn. Hey. Hi, Annie. And we've got Asif Murray. Hello. Hey. It's incredibly important to understand interneuron diversity, um, the mechanisms for how it arises and the ways it can go wrong. And w one of the things that you're working on is how much of interneuron fate is predetermined via intrinsic genetic programming and how much is driven by other factors during embryogenesis. Um, one of the really interesting spaces that you're filling out is in applying some of the newest and coolest genomic tools to the interesting spatial and temporal uh, questions about the origin of cell fate. Talk, talk to us about that. Sure. I mean, you know, my lab tries to utilize uh, and in part develop um, novel techniques to answer some of the questions that are very challenging in terms of cell fate and that have been previously difficult to access due to the lack of techniques to do it. So most notably, the uh, over recent years, the advent of single cell technology where, um, where groups and researchers can harvest individual cell types from their favorite brain region or any organ in the body um, and dissociate the cells and, and gather them in single cell dissociations and do sequencing on them to determine at the single cell level what genes are being expressed by individual cells. It's very powerful for our understanding of cell, different cell types in the brain, cell fates, how these um, fates get determined throughout development. Um, and so uh, there, there's now, it's becoming easier and easier to do these types of uh, strategies, <clears throat> and so we're trying to use that um, approach to answer um, important and intriguing questions about brain development, and in, in particular how um, various genes play a role in generating the incredible diversity of interneuron subtypes that exist in the in the forebrain in different regions of the brain. Um, and so, by collecting these cells throughout development, um, we can kind of sequence, uh, determine the transcriptome and have a better feel for how these genes change over time and when do these um, diverse cell types arise throughout development. Um, so we're looking at both the RNA level and also um, trying to look at the epigenetics level to understand how chromatin state and chromatin structure and histone modifications affect um, these fate decisions in the embryo that eventually give rise to this uh, heterogeneous population of GABAergic interneurons um, throughout the brain that play um, you know, very critical roles in brain function um, and perturbation of interneurons is associated with a wide variety of neurological and neuropsychiatric diseases. So the more we understand about the development in normal um, animals and humans, the better prepared we are to understand what goes wrong um, during development in, in various brain diseases. Let me ask you about causation. Sure. So, and these experiments, a lot of the experiments are about what's correlated with what, and I guess the goal is to figure out what is the sequence of cause and effect events that cause a cell to end up in the frontal cortex in layer five as a protagonist cell or something sure. like that. So, how can we 
take this, you know, massive amount of data at all these different times and correlations among expression of different genes and all that kind of stuff and create a, a cause and effect sequence of events. I mean, I think that general concept is very challenging and very hard to, um, to cleanly determine. I mean, <clears throat> there are some scenarios, like on a molecular level, you can see that a transcription, transcription factor binds to a specific promoter and drives gene expression. That's a very clean cause and effect. But at a more macro level, figuring out how a plethora of cues in the environment or genes are integrated at the same time to generate fate decisions, um, and which is causative and which just kind of is correlative is, is very challenging. Um, and so you know, the best way to do that is try to manipulate candidate gene or genes or genomic loci and see how that affects the fate of the cell or a particular aspect of development. So then you can say with some sort of amount of confidence, if I mutate this gene, then I see this defect. And that gives a hint at causation, but whether that's really what goes on in brain diseases and neurological deficits is still an open question. I mean, <clears throat> you know, if one thinks about schizophrenia, that's a disease where the onset occurs in late adolescence or age 21, and um, there's a lot of people that, that look at um, uh, cell types and changes in brains of deceased schizophrenic patients. And you can characterize changes in these cell types, but that's at a point in time when the disease has already manifested itself, and all of the changes that occur that led to this have uh, happened earlier during development. So you don't know if what you're looking at where you see changes in cell numbers is actually a cause of the disease or an effect because of earlier causes that happened years earlier during development and the brain is plastic and tries to correct for these changes and what you're looking at is the, the brain attempting to correct itself for an earlier perturbation. So getting at the idea of causation, do mutations in these genes really cause these phenotypes sometimes is straightforward, but often is, is very challenging. And, um, and I don't have a great answer for how one tries to, tries to look at that, except for you know, really carefully mutating various regions or genes and then looking at the output. And, and sometimes you can mutate a couple at a time to see how that affects the, the, either the cell fate or the behavior you're looking at. Um, can we kind of get an idea? And of course, we only know what we know now, and sure. later we'll know more. And uh, but uh, knowing from what we know now, maybe we could even try to only get an estimate of how challenging it is. So in a in a system where there's ten things interacting with each other, figuring out the cause and effect is complicated, but it's not impossible. Sure, there are only ten things. In a system where there are ten thousand things interacting together. We may not even really have a strategy for dealing with cause and effect yeah. in a system like that. And that's the more realistic system, I think. I would love to work in a system that only had 10 things interacting to look at cause and effect, but unfortunately, I don't think that's biology. I think it's hundreds of things acting simultaneously. You have things repressing activity or repressing cues, things activating activity and activating cues, genes competing with each other, genes complementing each other's function. Sometimes you knock out a gene and you think it's really important and nothing happens because there's three other genes doing the same thing. Um, it's, it's very, very challenging to try to get at that, which I think is why some of these more unbiased holistic approaches, or let, let's just see 
how a cell looks at this stage in development, what its chromatin looks like, what genes it's expressing, and then go from there and then either compare it from a wild type for a mutant or look at different stages of development and see what's changing. Again, this is all correlation and try to, as best one can, look for some sort of master regulator that's causing, um, causing these genes. You know, the nice thing about, so I, I study these ganglionic eminences during development and where these interneurons arise from and one called the medial ganglionic eminence, um, we were fortunate enough that it sort of does have a master regulator. This NKX2.1 gene is a transcription factor that it's primarily expressed in this region uh, and it's critical for development of the cell types from this region. If you knock out NKX2.1, you basically lose cells that come from the MG region and other brain regions kind of take it over. So in that sense, it, we do sort of have a master regulator and NKX2.1 is the cause that leads towards cell types from that region. But I think that's pretty rare in the brain in particular and development in general to have something that's fairly clean where you have one gene that plays such a critical role in a specific brain region or is subtype it, of cell. Is it just a matter of, of looking for the one or do you just think that that's a very rare? Uh, I think um, I think it's uh, a lot of brain regions or places have multiple genes interacting. This is um, one of the few, I mean, I don't know about other brain regions, but I don't think it's very often where if you knock out one gene, you see a complete loss of a huge population of cell type. Maybe a lot earlier in development, but at this stage, you know, the brain, embryonic brain is more or less intact and you're starting to <coughs> undergo neurogenesis um, and you can kind of turn the MG into an LG or CG-like place simply by knocking out this one transcription factor. So referring back to what Charlie said about cause and effect, what is the temporal resolution that becomes important for these snapshots of, of so for example, uh, you know, looking at the transcriptome? What, how do we define, because I know in, em in embryogenesis it's generally E1, E2, I mean, these are, is that an arbitrary thing based on historical precedent? or? Well, I, I, I think the concept you raised is an important one. So whatever type of analysis you do where you're looking at whether it's a single cell sequencing or immunohistochemistry, you're looking at one snapshot in time. You have no information about the development if you're only looking at that data set. And the brain, as all organs during development, is, a, is changing over time. And the spatial cues and the signals that are critical for um, giving rise to cell types from a particular region changes over time. And so um, from, from this metoganglionic eminence, early on you're producing two types of interneurons that probably been smashed at, and later on during embryogenesis, it's primarily um, just these parvalbumin cells. And so something is changing over time from E12 to E16 in the structure that's causing changes in these cell fates. And you have other cell types called chandelier cells that are really primarily only born at the latest part of neurogenesis, E16, E, E17. You really don't see them born very much earlier, and then you have a burst of them being born later. So the Keeping in mind the temporal changes and the temporal dynamics doing, during development is really critical for fully um, comprehending the mechanisms that regulate um, interneuron development and honestly all, all types of development. And, and being able to track cells throughout development would be, if we could look at the, how a transcriptome changes um, in a particular cell throughout its developmental trajectory, that would be the ideal scenario, but it's sort of impossible to do right now, at least I don't know how to do it. So, The fundamental concept in all of this stuff has to do with the existence of cell types. Yes. So since Cajal, we've 
believed in cell types. Yes. And, uh, uh, but there's always been some uncertainty about it. If I define cell types one way, I get a slightly different thing than what I, sometimes widely different thing than yeah. what I do if I do it another way. And one of the interesting aspects of this work is that you're combining a bunch of different ways of defining cell types and see how they line up with each other. Yeah. And uh, are you okay? Are you happy with the way things line up, or do you think cell type concept is getting stronger, or it's getting weaker as we go along? I mean, I, I would say the advent of single cell sequencing data has helped that concept, but it still gets murky. I mean, you know, when I talk to a physiologist, they're going to call a PV cell a fast spiking cell, because that's what it does in their hand. When they record from these cells, they base it on the physiological activity, whereas from a more developmental, genetic, or molecular level, I call it a PV cell because that's the best marker for this cell type. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of cell type, there are some very clear distinguishing cell types where there's significant differences in the morphology and the synaptic connectivity so that anybody, any reasonable, per, reasonable person can say, yes, these are two distinct subtypes. And there are other ones that are a little bit murky. You, know, you have a a basket cell in the hippocampus is PV expressing in a neuron, and a, a similar cell type in the cortex. Well, are those different cell types? Some people might say yes, because they're in different regions of the brain, and thus involved in different circuitry, and, um, and synapsing on different partners, so yes, it's a different cell type. Others might say, if you record from that cell, they behave identically, the transcriptome is pretty similar, so no, it's the same cell type, just in different brain regions. And I don't think there's exactly a great answer to that. It depends on your perspective and your, your view. I mean, even in the single-cell data, um, how the algorithms determine cell clusters and distinct cell types is variable. If you set the threshold very, very high for distinguishing the clusters, you might only see three subsets. And if you change that threshold for, for the computational processes, you might turn it into 15 different cell types. So which of those is correct? Who super knows? Super familiar. <laughs> yeah. Because so. people that use morphological methods argued whether they saw three cells. According to Cahal, basically sure. three is the right number for every part of the brain. Yeah. So, but, uh, and so there was a kind of idea that there ought to be exactly three cell types everywhere. And then sometimes people would see 25 cell types and they would have an argument. And they're, they have exactly the same data. Yeah. They're just looking at morphological yeah. somatodendritic morphology. Maybe. Well, I don't really want to go against Cajal, but I do think there's more than three. But the proper number um, is, is, I don't know. That's why I tend to say dozens of types of interneurons, because I think that's accurate. Was it two dozen or is it six dozen? I don't know. And... You know, uh, again, since the single cell data is a snapshot in time, it's possible that two clusters that are very close together are possibly are like the same type of cell, just in different states. So maybe one is getting a lot more activity, which is causing the gene expression to change a little bit, which um, when they run it on the computational algorithms, it's going to cluster separately as two different cells because it's more active than its friends right next to it. Is that a different cell type or just a different cell state of the same type of cells? And again, I don't think there's a clear answer to that. And groups that care that much more than I can argue about that as much as they want. Um, you know, I, I think relating it to, um, so, so, to some extent, it's a semantics issue. What you want to know is what is the cell type doing in, in the brain for the um, behavior I care about or the connectivity I care about? And at some point, it, it kind of I view it more as a semantics argument. I don't care whether there's 24 cell types or 36 cell types or whatever. Let's just kind of figure out what these cells are doing and how their activity changes with different cell states or 
behaviors or assays and, and go from there. So, so the transcriptome images, these plots yes. that, uh, that are two-dimensional reductions of these complicated yes. multi-dimensional things, they kind of look like blobs that are separated from each other, but they often look like they're kind of smeared into yes. each other. And then usually there's some color Added on there to make them look more different. Yeah, like more different. We need blobs. to make pretty pictures. So. And uh, but if if I'm just looking, just as a naive person who doesn't do this work, that's me. And I'm looking at those pictures, and I'm thinking, does this picture mean that they're discrete cell types, or does it mean there's a continuum of cell gene expression? I have a hard time answering the question. So I think in some cases there's pretty good evidence that two separate clusters are distinct cell types. In other cases, um, it might not be that clear, especially when you think about development. And these cells are actively changing the transcriptome as you go from a ventricular zone cell to a subventricular cell to a postmitotic cell. I mean, this is a very fluid process, and there's an incredible amount of um, gene expression changes that are occurring just in that small time window. So that is, I mean, from a developmental perspective, it's almost certainly a continuum. You do not have such a clear discrepancy of, of cell groups. Um, but when you're talking about a, a stable, uh, you know, adult brain or whatever there, I think that genetic stability is a, little, um, is a little more set in stone and there's probably less genetic variability in individual cells. So um, I kind of view a lot of times the single cell plots as suggestions. This is basically, this is what a, a computer, a very smart computer, is telling you it thinks is different cell types. And there are certainly areas where they're murky and fuzzy. And if you, a lot of, a lot of these programs do bootstrapping, which means you kind of run the analysis over and over again. And sometimes when you do that, cells will jump between two clusters. And that's very common. And, um, and people notice that all the time. And so, um, you know, these, these clean clusters don't always work like that. Um, so, uh, and so that may, maybe the, the scenarios where you have cells jumping between a couple clusters that's uh, the computer is having a harder time figuring out what cell type it is. So maybe it's not an actual specific cell type. Maybe that's a cell kind of in between two states, getting different activity when you happen to capture this cell at a particular period of time. Um, so the answer is both. Some are clear-cut uh, cell types, and some are messier. Maybe that's a different cell type. Maybe it's a different cell state. Um, maybe there's only three or four genes that are actually different between these two clusters. And does that make it a different cell type or a different state of a similar cell? I, again, I think that's very hard to answer, and it's a semantic argument that plenty of people um, like to participate in, and I am not one of them. <laughs> but the way it works, technically, is there's some transcripts that are not useful for distinguishing cell types, sure. but they are part of the library and are part of the process. Yes. But uh, computationally, the influence of those are just removed because they're not basically, basically yeah. sometimes. And then, so the, the number of transcripts that are actually determining these clusters, probably not a thing that normally pops out of the analysis, or is it that you know, oh, well, that's actually this plot is based on you know, 25 out of 10,000 things that were in the library. I mean, yeah, so basically what you can do is when you have these different clusters and the algorithms determine that these are what it thinks is distinct cell types, you can then go into each individual cluster and say, here's the 10 or 20 or 50 top genes that differentially 
um, are differentially expressed in this cluster compared to others. And so when you do that, there are some clusters where you look at the top three or four genes and they are only on in that cluster and not on in any of the other ones. And so that's pretty clean. There's clear differential expression. There are other times where some of the top genes might be kind of expressed in all cell types, but maybe just a lot stronger in this cell type. Um, so uh, so the, certainly what you said is true, that the computer is doing, trying its best to differentiate these 25,000 cells you just gave in this huge data point. How can I distinguish these best amongst each other? And to do that, it ignores all the genes that are not expressed everywhere or are expressed everywhere and really tries to focus in on differentially expressed genes and then using that set of differentially expressed genes, how similar or dissimilar are these cells from each other and these clusters from each other? And that's you know how it spits out, does this dimensionality reduction and spits out these beautiful dot plots that we all kind of use and again are I would say kind of suggestions for cell types rather than concrete definitive cell types. So even a single cell data is kind of snapshot, but mm -hmm. from now you learn or other people has all those data. How, how did you see in the future or maybe um, soon you can uh, compare that data set to the disease condition? We have so many consulting and the data is there as schizophrenia, autism, spectrum disorder, and um, bipolar, you know, how, how, how you think uh, you can integrate your data to others, those disease uh, data set, and come out, maybe this is really important for development, so trigger that kind of disease. So I think we can do that now. Um, you know, if you're doing it in your own lab where you have all the same conditions and you have your wild type mouse and your mutant mouse, whatever cell type you're looking at, you, know, you can generate that information right now in the lab. Um, what's trickier is um, the, the repeating experiments in different labs can be tricky depending on if somebody did cell versus nuclei, somebody did 10x genomics platform versus fluid diamond. There's lots of different ways to get single cell data. Um, whether you use frozen tissue, fresh tissue cells versus nuclei. And once you get to that level to compare the data that's out there with the data you want to look at, um, it's, it gets a little bit messier because you can have batch effects and different, um, different reasons why uh, wild-type data from somebody's lab of a wild-type mouse is from another lab probably do the exact same thing. It doesn't quite map onto it so well. Um, so there's a lot of variability in that, especially when you get to human tissue. So in the mouse world, I think it's easier to deal with. You can take your mutant mouse model take your brain region, do the single cell sequencing, and basically look. And we, we're, we're active, actually actively doing that with collaborators now to look at um, in a wild-type mouse and a mutation of lysencephaly, how different do the cells in the hippocampus look based on the single cell sequencing. Um, and so we're doing, we're doing something with that in our own lab as well in terms of epigenetic modifications. <clears throat> I think what's most exciting is to use that in humans. So now, um, you know, you can get brain tissue from... Um, from humans, both uh, control um, and people with disease, and because of the advent of being able to harvest nuclei and doing single cell sequencing on that, many labs now have access to human tissue, um, um, frozen tissue, that they can then extract the nuclei and do single cell sequencing on that. But again, there's a lot of parameters there. How quickly was the tissue frozen? Um, it wasn't fixed. Um, and the quality control is a little bit more problematic there. But if it's done in the right way, I think you can even compare that um, at the human level or with organoids to generate um, uh, your favorite cell type from wild-type patients and, um, and patients with, with various diseases. 
to see, now you can do the single cell sequencing on these organoids and see what is different between a control patient and a patient with autism or schizophrenia or epilepsy or whatever you want. Um, but so I think we're, we're very close to being able to do that efficiently in a well-controlled manner. Um, and I expect that type of experiment to increase rapidly over the next couple of years. Since you mentioned the organoid, how you feel about human iPSC derived organoid and people using that to modeling the developmental process or even do the CRISPR case now or any kind of the, um, manipulation and trying to see will that uh, iPSC derived organoid really generate some phenotype represent human <laughs> disease condition? How you feel about that? I mean, I think it's a, a very useful tool with caveats. I mean, there's, there's vast differences between mouse development and human development, and mouse brain and human brain, and mouse models for various diseases, schizophrenia and autism, are not really that good, honestly, for, um, for, um, for representing the actual human disease. So organoids, where you take <coughs> um, fibroblasts from a patient, revert them back to stem cells, and then differentiate them into neurons or your cell type, there you have kind of spa uh, patient-specific cell types, and you can grow these cells in a dish over months and months, and they will um, generate neurons, different types of neurons that somewhat mimic in vivo. And so it's a very good tool to study human disease. And there are, you know, some, some caveats with that. Certainly the question is how well does this mimic human development is a very important one. And um, it, it, I, I don't think you can view it as mimicking human development. It's, it's a tool. It's a model, just like a mouse is a model. Organoids are a model of human development, the human disease. So, um, you know, I think in the beginning when people started playing around with organoids, there was a lot of variability from organoid to organoid sometimes. Some look very different from each other, even when you grew them in the, in the same dish. And really great work from Paul Arlotta and your good Knobloch and a variety of other labs have really fine-tuned this procedure so that you can um, get reproducible organoids that if you do single cell sequencing or test them out in other ways, they are very similar to their friends growing in the tube. And so now that you've done that, you can have a little bit more confidence when you're comparing a, a, a control individual with the cells from a, a diseased individual. Um, since the cells are developing at the same time between these organoids, you can really kind of use them to see what's going wrong and what's different in it. But there are certainly caveats. There's a really nice study in BioArchive from Thomas Nowakitsky's lab um, where he compared uh, single-cell RNA sequencing and single-cell ATAC sequencing between um, human fetal tissue as well as organoids. And in some instances, the subtypes mapped onto each other pretty nice, but what was quite striking um, is that the enhancers, so uh, far-distant enhancers were present or accessible in the fetal brain but he didn't see very many of those in the organoids. So that's a really nice example of a disconnect between organoids and human development. And what that means or how one goes forward for that with that data is, um, is worth thinking. But I think that, that nicely shows that organoids are not equivalent to human development, nor do I think anyone should think that they are. <clears throat> but again, it's a great tool to use to try to ask questions about human disease that, or mouse models or other models just fail because of a variety of reasons. Thank you. I was wondering a little bit about that, about epigenetics. So traditionally, everybody has thought, well, if I just track all of the transcripts and when they happen and everything, I'll be able to sort out the entire progression of what's going on. Yeah. Um, but 
uh, all of my friends who study epigenetics tell me, oh no, things that last a long time, you need to look at epigenetics. And cell types, they last a long time. So once yeah. a cell is a cell type, it is. And they almost never go back and turn into something else unless you know some trick and you do it yourself. Yeah. So, uh, so it is wonderful that you are looking at that epigenetic uh, components of this, but uh, say something about the challenges of that. It seems to me there's not, there's not a lot about that yet. I mean, uh, so, you know, I'm kind of recently um, diving into the epigenetics world because it piqued my interest for a lot of the reasons you mentioned. Um, you know, changes in chromatin state and histone methylation and epigenetic changes are, are very important for development. You, you know, the, over time, the, the genomic, the chromatin gets shut off. And certain regions have to be suppressed so that you're not making liver genes and brain cells and vice versa. And so that's primarily epigenetic mechanisms that are regulating that chromatin structure. Um, you know, a lot of the tools to look at this, whether it's ChIP-seq or ATAC-seq or looking at DNA methyl uh, methylation, for a long time they required thousands and thousands of cells to be able to um, have enough power to detect changes in methylation or whatever, because unlike RNA-seq, where you're looking at the uh, epigenome or chromatin strain, you're basically looking at two alleles, um, genomic DNA rather than RNA. So, um, so for a while, while those approaches were quite useful for a variety of experiments, the requirement for large cell numbers kind of uh, minimized the ability to apply these tools to development, where you have cells in a variety of different states. Uh, and epigenetic states, and so pooling a lot of these cells together is not so informative for understanding differences in cell type. And that, uh, more recently, there have been progress made for doing like chip seq with low cell numbers, or what we've been utilizing in the lab, single cell ATAC seq to look at chromatin accessibility at the single cell level. Now we have the power to look um, at a single cell level to have a better understanding of the epigenetic changes that are going on. In individual cells as they progress through development and um, and the transcriptome can only tell you so much and the epigenome um, and the changes in modulations there can tell you um, I think actually even more about what a cell is going to become because it has to the chromatin has to be reorganized in a way such that specific genes will either be repressed or expressed and all of that happens prior to gene expression so the more we can learn about the chromatin state, the better we might be able to predict what cell types are becoming because they're poised to become, to express certain genes that are uh, indicative of various cell types. So um, I'm excited where the field is going and in particular the um, advances in the techniques that allow us to ask some of these questions at a, at a f much more microscopic level than we were able to before to really um, delve into the role that epigenetics plays in development of specifically neuro neuronal cell types. So some people uh, ascribe all kinds of interesting stuff to epigenetics, mostly just hoping epigenetics will explain things. Like a favorite is schizophrenia. Schizophrenia, sort of not very heritable, maybe a little tiny bit heritable. It's kind of weird. Maybe it's epigenetic, hear people say. Well, if, that's, if it were true, and I don't think anybody knows for sure, but if that were true then maybe the things you're studying are the way epigenetics would get expressed in the structure 
of the brain that could cause something. So some of the epigenetic things aren't happening during development, right? They were sure. they were there before. Yeah. And is there a way to see how that influences the development of cortical interneurons or something that could be important? In- sure. I mean, you know, in my mind, the, the more complex the neurological or psychiatric problems, such as you know, schizophrenia is a very complex disease with both, I think, genetic and environmental influences and probably epigenetic as well, and it manifests itself in very severe ways, or there's a spectrum of, uh, you know, schizophrenic. So, um, you know, a very complex disease like that, I think, is really hard to pin down. Plenty of people have done you know, GWAS studies to identify genomic loci, and some of them um, do seem to be valid, and other ones kind of come and go when the next paper comes out. But um, certainly, I think getting a handle for the transcriptome and the epigenome and development um, is important for this, because then again, you can take, go back, going back to the organoids, you can take um, generate stem cells from schizophrenic patients from fibroblasts um, and then differentiate them either towards excitatory um, cortical dorsal cortical cells or inhibitory inner neurons and you do that with wild type control and schizophrenic patients and you can look in the dish in human cells how do the cells from these schizophrenic patients differ in their in their fate and their maturation and plenty of labs are doing that and coming up with interesting observations about cell cycle dynamics or maturation in patients' um, cells from a schizophrenic patient compared to a control. But again, there's always the hesitation of what's really going on in the real brain. This is a ball of cells in a dish. And so it can certainly be insightful, but there's still that leap of faith that what we see in this ball of human cells in the dish is we, we can conclude that that's what's going on in the human brain, especially for something like schizophrenia where there's not a clear uh, always concise genetic cause or epigenetic cause. But what you could do in these organoids is actually do single cell ATAC or single cell mRNA seq to see how is the epigenome different between these. And maybe regions are silenced, either hyper or hypomethylated in stem cells or differentiated cells from schizophrenic patients compared to wild type. And if you consistently see that in different schizophrenic patients, then maybe you get on. Uh, that can be an indi- indication that there is something going on here in the epigenome that's, um, that's affecting these cells' development and, and could eventually give rise to schizophrenia. But again, schizophrenia is very complex because we don't really know what you know, the cell type is defective or where the cause of it is. As soon as something goes awry in the, in the circuitry, that causes a lot of things to go awry in different brain circuits. And so back to your causation uh, question: What what causes schizophrenia? There's defects in inner neurons in schizophrenic patients. Is that a cause? I, I have no idea. Is that is that just an effect because something else went wrong in the striatum or wherever that that causes this? So um, that's why I think multifaceted approaches. I use as many tools as possible to really um, define cell types and define changes through development is the best way to go. Because the more comprehensive information you have, the better we can hopefully make. Um, logical and insightful um, conclusions and insights into developmental diseases and, and all diseases. So just looking at genes, just looking at the epigenome is probably not going to do it. We've got to get a more holistic picture of what's going on. So based on what you said, just look into the genes or the epigenome, maybe not enough. So the molecular level maybe just tell us something. But how about we combine with the cellular level data like a 
big cellular data, like connect to data, do you think that will help sure. to address I, those diseases? I think the more you can connect these various approaches, transcriptomics, uh, epigenomics, methylome, proteome, connectome, all your favorite ohm. Um, <laughs> the, you know, and a lot of it is computationally challenging. You know, we, can, we can generate this data with looking at one particular thing, but what we want to have is a comprehensive view for all of this data in a particular cell or cell type. And um, I don't see any reason why one should not try to understand as much of the connectome as possible, because certainly, especially some diseases where I think it's a circuit perturbation. Something mm -hmm. is hyperactive or hypoactive mm -hmm. in a particular circuit, a particular connection, and then that that problem gets exacerbated or rever rever reverberates throughout the circuitry um, and, and causes greater deficits in other brain regions. Um, so the more we understand about connectivity through rabies tracing or other techniques, you know, the, the better we we'll understand that if if this cell type is perturbed in this brain region, well, now we know what those cell, who those cells are talking to and where they're talking to, and we can make predictions about how changes in excitability of those cells are going to affect the downstream cells and kind of try to fill in the logic. And maybe um, maybe there are different ways to short-circuit the problems that are caused in this case, um, either downstream or upstream, to try to deal with disease or understand more about disease. So certainly the connectome is, I think, is important. Um, to understand how these cells talk to each other. I had a question for you. <clears throat> how do you think that the molecular um, aspects of the characterizing the molecular aspects of these uh, the developmental trajectory of these cells is going to provide information about the physiology and their role in not only just like brain development, let alone like how to become dysfunctional with disease? Yeah. So. Um, I, I think you have to look at the physiology as well. I mean, you know, what we're looking at is the genomic and epigenetic changes. So you can certainly look at um, ion channels and other factors that you would predict to um, have um, to be important for specific aspects of the physiology, the electrophysiology downstream. Um, but again, those are only predictions. So if you see um, a cell is upregulating or downregulating a particular channel, ion channel, that you think is important for this aspect of its electrophysiological properties. The only way to know that is to test it out, to go record from those cells, or um, to, to see if that is in fact uh, accurate. So, um, so it, you know, the idea here is to find um, candidates um, or genes or enhancers or epigenetic, epigenetic loci that are critical to for the fate and maturation of these cells, but then you still have to do the downstream work to see how those genes or regions are affecting these cells. If they're perturbed in various um, um, gene, um, um, diseases, um, what is the output of that? How does that cause changes in, in cell circuit? And so simply just looking at RNA-seq data, comparing RNA-seq between mutants and wild types doesn't tell you that kind of information. Again, you're looking at a snapshot in time and you're not looking at physiological function. You can make hypotheses from that data about what um, genes are changing in these cells and how that will affect their um, connectivity or their firing properties, but you have to go test it out um, to, to know, to fully know. The medial ganglionic eminence, where all of the parvalbumin cells, are, mostly parvalbumin cells, come yeah. from, that's like thought of as a place that just makes interneurons for the cortex, but actually medial ganglionic eminence is the globus pallidus. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, uh, and bef 
before anybody knew it gave cells to the cortex, it was the globus pallidus, and it continues to be the globus pallidus. So, uh, so I wonder, like, some of the cells aren't leaving. Some of them are no, going to stay. Some of them hang around. Are they, um, is that part of the calculation as we're looking at all these cell types? Are we, are we taking the globus pallidus cell type as one of the cell types that's being generated, or are we just thinking about it as cortex hippocampus and no, well, vitamin and So it is certainly true that <clears throat> the ganglionic eminences produce both, basically all GABAergic cells in the forebrain. So cortical interneurons and hippocampal interneurons that I primarily work with are born there and then they migrate to the regions. But these, the LG, MG, and CG also give rise to long-range projection GABAergic cells. So as you say, globus pallidus is made up of GABAergic long-range projection cells. They are all born in the MGE. Um, they are very distinct from interneurons and a uh, hundred different ways. Um, and I think we all kind of get locked in our own little world of focus and try to, um, you know, uh, uh, focus on what we what we think is most pressing or interesting and kind of ignore the rest. But certainly the globus pallidus and other gabergic projection cells are born from there. And you're right to point out that that was known and striatal cells as well. That was known well before. It wasn't until pioneering work by uh, Stu Anderson when he was in John Rubestein's lab and Asif and I both worked with Stu that um, in the, I think, late 90s, where he finally had um, definitive data um, that interneurons do, in fact, come from the ventral forebrain. They're, they're um, immigrants to the cortex. Um, and so that was, you know, really only 20 years ago that we actually even appreciated um, that conceptually. So we've come a long way since then. Um, but, but prior to that, it was certainly known that globus pallidus and striatal projection neurons and a variety of other um, gabardic cells in the ventral brain came from from there. So the interneurons are kind of a more recent understanding of this long tangential migration that they go through um, and why they're born so far away from you know, their host regions is not that common in the nervous system um, where you undergo these long tangential routes. So, um, so it is very interesting and while my work doesn't specifically focus on <coughs> the uh, gabardic projection cell neurons, we certainly have to keep that in the back of our mind. And when, when I talk about interneurons coming from the MG, and I don't mean to ignore all the other wonderful GABAergic cell types that come from there as well, but... It's just that when we say parvalbumin cells, a lot of times we think, oh, parvalbumin cells, they're going to migrate. But half of the GP neurons are parvalbumin cells. Yep. And they are fast-spiking neurons. And they look and act a lot like cortical interneurons. They make basket synapses on each other. There's a lot of commonality between the parvalbumin cells in the globus pallidus and the ones ev everywhere else in the forebrain. I wonder if they just get misidentified as parvalbumin cells on their way to cortex in, during the experiments, in the experiments. Yeah, I mean, so, so some of these um, single cell sequencing uh, studies that um, from Gord Fischel and Oscar Marin that kind of um, initially focused on um, the single cell sequencing in the, in the embryonic stages in these regions, um, a paper from Gord Fischel's lab nicely kind of showed this that each of the MG and LG CG can early on kind of be divided into these different streams. One is um, uh, interneurons, uh, one that shows uh, genes uh, um, um, expression patterns consistent with interneurons, one that shows more um, gabardic projection neurons, like lobus pallidus cells, and then a third branch that kind of is probably chapped expression, cholinergic cells. So, so you, you can distinguish interneurons, cortical or hippocampal, versus these gabardic projection neurons pretty early on, I don't know exactly when, if it's in cycling cells or post-mitotic, but they have a, d a distinct trajectory early on from these studies. So 
they're certainly there, um, and the evidence seems to indicate that these projection cells might be born earlier than interneurons. Um, you know, they probably overlap in embryonic space, but I think the production precedes the start of, of, of interneuron, cortical interneurons. So I think you're generating some of these globus pallidus cells earlier. Um, how that relates, if, if there's insight into clonality, can a cell give rise both to a globus pallidus projection neuron and a cortical inhibitory neuron? I don't know if that's the case. Um, there might be distinct cycling uh, ventricular zone cells that give rise specifically to GABAergic projection neurons with globus pallidus versus cortical neurons, but that hasn't, at least in my mind, been so cleanly worked out, definitively worked out that it is in fact the case, or if a progenitor cell can give rise to both types. You can certainly have a progenitor cell that gives rise to different types of interneurons and even interneurons in different brain regions, but whether it can give rise to other GABAergic projection neurons and an interneuron is, is somewhat unclear. So that's another big realm of space that we don't know much about. These, these, you know, I'm, I'm talking about um, trying to understand mechanisms that regulate different interneuron fates, but there are certainly these other GABAergic cell types, projection neurons that are born from there that, again, we don't study very closely, but it'd be quite interesting to try to understand how that GABAergic projection versus GABAergic inhibitory interneuron decision is made, and at what stage is that made, and how are those cells, how are those decisions different, so. Thank you for joining us, Tim Petros. This has My been pleasure. Scientist Talk Show.